All right, we are going to talk about Paul's letter to the Romans and kind of the outline of the three weeks presented here. So basically, we're going to do a whirlwind tour of Romans this today. Today, we're going to go through the whole book uh, and, and look at what it says and how it highlights that. And then we're going to talk in the next two weeks about interpretations, first interpretations that were made during the Reformation and before the Reformation and how that formed various churches, Catholic, uh, Protestant churches, and then some more new interpretations that have happened more recently and how that may have changed what we think about as far as the uh, interpretations that came through the Reformation and how those have affected our society today and how we might want to reconsider some of those things. So those are the, the three weeks and how we're basically going to organize this. Uh, of course, if you want to raise hands and ask questions or stop me or clarification, go ahead and do that. Uh, I'll just try to read through. We're going to read some scripture, uh, but uh, primarily talk about how it all worked and what, what it means together in, in, in context. So I'm going to start with a big sweep of scripture, all of it. What does it all mean? What does the Bible say in, in big picture terminology uh, and how that might work it out? So in the beginning, in Genesis, obviously, we have the concept that God created the, everything, us and everything, and called it good. And then Adam and Eve were stewards of that paradise at that point in time. And they had one rule to obey, right? Don't eat from the tree. And they did. So we now have the fall and original sin. So in book, you know, as of two or three chapters into Genesis, everything's gone crazy. Uh, so basically sin is the issue. Sin is kind of characterized as a selfishness of, of humans uh, and disobedience of God. So that's sort of where it started. And then God tries to reconcile this relationship by calling Adam uh, to go to a new place, to be a new people, and to follow God's lead. So God promises Abraham a promised land, and God credits him with that uh, righteousness by his faith that he just followed, that, uh, followed that commandment of God. And because he believed that, God credited him as righteous. And then God makes his covenant with Abraham. The covenant basically is, I'll give you a promised land, you'll be the father of many nations, and you will be blessed through that relationship that we have with, that God has with Abraham and his descendants. Uh, and, but that also has a, a caveat that all of people, all people of the world and all of nature, all of the earth itself will be also be blessed through the, the covenant with Abraham. So basically Abraham is blessed to be a blessing to everyone, to be us and to all of nature and all of nature will be reconciled with God through this covenant. And then we learn through the rest of the Old Testament, basically, that this relationship is pretty tricky, that God's justice is pretty demanding. And if you break that covenant relationship, you can be punished pretty dramatically. You can be killed. A lot of people got killed. You can be exiled into uh, you know, Babylon, etc. cetera. Uh, you, your temple can be destroyed. If you do well, you know, you can be David and Solomon, et cetera, like that. So that relationship is pretty critical, that blessing and covenant relationship that you follow with God. And you learn that 
once you're, you're penitent, once the, prof, the, the prophets and the uh, others kind of convince you that you're doing wrong and you, you, you repent, that God is very merciful and brings you back into relationship with, with him. That all happens, and then we have Jesus on the scene. And the question really is, what is Jesus? Is Jesus the fulfillment of the covenant? That the, this is the ultimate climax, the, the plan that God had all along? Or is it a total new covenant where God just gave up on Israel and now is going to try something new? I think that's a critical dimension of how we read Romans. Are we understanding it as a fulfillment of the covenant or as something completely different? And that's really how we want to think about what we're talking about today. Is that clear as a big picture of how we're going about this? Okay, any questions before we move on? Okay, good. So, uh, talk about Paul. Paul is an apostle, basically didn't know Jesus. Uh, his, his primary mission was to the Gentiles, uh, but he was really focused on winning over whole communities, the Jewish people, the Jewish synagogues, the Gentiles, etc., all of those communities. He was not really focused on individual salvations for people, individual people. So he, he really wants a community of, of convert, converts, you might say, to understand the gospel message and to come to know Jesus. Uh, he really considered it a tragedy that the Jewish communities did not take advantage of this offer from God to reconcile that relationship. Uh, that was really his, his really thorn in the side that they rejected it and rejected his message. But Paul was not part, uh, kind of in the circle of the, believers of the Christian church in, in early times either. He was outside. He was a maverick. He, he really didn't get along well with James or Peter in the, in the Christian church in Jerusalem. Uh, and he had a lot of radical ideas that really didn't come to be well accepted into the 4th or 5th century. So a lot of what he did was really kind of considered on the side. Uh, and all the letters we have from him, they're the earliest writings in the New Testament, <clears throat> They all come, most of them anyway, are these kind of one-sided conversations with a church that he had founded that had issues that they had written to him or he had written to them about resolving some of these issues. They're not really theoretical, uh, theological treaties. They're, they're basically kind of dealing with pastoral care type issues. Uh, and and they, they really formed our understanding of his theology in pieces. So you've got to pick and choose what's going on within that, that context. Another important thing to understand is Paul uh, really was thinking about the end times, this eschatological kinds of concepts. He was not really envisioning the, the second coming of Christ to be very far into the future. So you've you got to understand that he's sort of holding us together, trying to get as many people converted as possible uh, before God, Jesus Christ comes again uh, and, and brings us all into salvation. So he wasn't long-term thinking. <laughs> and that's kind of a, from our point of view, we always think long-term at this point because it hasn't come yet. So, so we're, we're thinking about that. Okay, what's, uh, what did Paul do in Romans? Romans is considered his supreme work. It's a mature theology from him. Uh, it is very late in his ministry. It was written about 57 AD in Corinth. Uh, and it was, a, it was the letter written, it was the only letter written to a church that he did not found. 
So this is sort of a different kind of letter than all the rest. All the rest of the letters are pastoral letters, where he's actually trying to pastoral care with his communities. But this is really an ambassadorial letter, where he is actually trying to introduce himself to a congregation he hasn't met uh, and doesn't know a whole lot about, actually. Uh, so he, he basically is telling them, I've got this mission. I've got to bring the collection for the poor back to Jerusalem. But after I do that, I want to come visit you. And hopefully you'll, you'll help talk to me a little bit. You'll also support me in my efforts to go in, and to Spain and be a missionary in Spain. So he's got two, two purposes there. One is to kind of meet them and try to share his thoughts with them, but also to get their support for his trips, for missionary trips to Spain. Uh, on the way, he was arrested back uh, in Jerusalem. James, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem, warned him not to come because he had a reputation as being a rabble-rouser. Uh, he came anyway, and about 10 days after he arrived, he was arrested and started uh, you know, being tried there. Because Paul was a uh, Roman citizen, he had the right to request uh, an audience before uh, the, the uh, emperor, the Caesar, to uh, defend his case against uh, the, the, the accusations. So he went and basically uh, requested a hearing before Caesar. He, on the way there, he got shipwrecked, etc. He was in prison in Rome for about two years before he actually got to meet, uh, present his case before Caesar. He did that. Caesar decided to execute him in about uh, 64 AD. Putting that in context, though, we also want to know that the, the second temple in Jerusalem was that was destroyed in 70 A.D. So he is part of the Second Temple uh, Judaism uh, that Paul lived within. That's the kind of context he lived in. And after his death, about 64, there was an uprising in Jerusalem, and they came and wiped out the city and destroyed the temple. And Judaism really changed completely after the destruction of the temple. You need to understand that when we talk about the Reformation, how they viewed Jews, etc. So. Uh, just to kind of give you an understanding of what's happening in Rome at this time, uh, there are a lot of Jews in Rome in the 40s A.D., uh, and there was a lot of Christians in Rome as well at that point. And there were disputes between the Jews and the Christians, and uh, Emperor Claudius kind of got didn't like this uh, rabble-rousing that was going on, and, and he basically expelled all the Jews from Rome in 49 AD. Many of those Jews went to join churches that Paul had founded in Corinth and Ephesus. They left Rome and came to some of those other places. Uh, and then when, after Claudius died, when Nero became the emperor, the Jews were asked or invited to come back to Rome. In about 54 AD, they started coming back to Rome. And these, these Jews, the the Christians in Rome, who were basically Gentile Christians all along from, from 49 to 54, they had established their own way of doing Christian faith, etc. And then these Jews, Jewish Christians from Corinth and Ephesus come with you know, kind of the concepts of Paul and others, and they started having more conflicts. And they still wanted to uh, do their, obser their Jewish observances uh, as Jewish Christians, still the Sabbath and the food rituals and circumcision, but the Gentiles really didn't understand that. And, and the whole concept boils down to, 
are those Jewish laws uh, really works of righteousness to earn salvation? Or are they really just marks of what it means to be a part of the covenant, the Old Testament covenant, the Jewish covenant? Are, are they memberships in an ethnic community versus efforts to win salvation? I think that's a key dimension that we need to understand of how, how Paul and the Romans approaches this. Paul's primary objective was trying to unify the Jew, Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in Rome. That's his primary concern, making that community work. Okay? So what is his message? What is he talking about in Romans? And what is, the, what is his gospel? So Paul's gospel really has two dimensions. One is that Jesus is Lord. And that Lord, in this case, is God, basically. Jesus is Lord and that God's righteousness has been fulfilled. Uh, and that righteousness basically is the covenant relationship. that God is faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham. So those are the two primary messages Paul wants to communicate in Romans. That by, by Jesus' death, we are made righteous with God, and by his resurrection, he becomes the Messiah, the true Lord. He becomes the, the, the Lord of, of, of all. Uh, so Paul sees this as Israel's climax. This is where all the prophecies are pointing, that Jesus will come, that there will be this Messiah, and he will, he will reconcile the world and bring relationships back with God into a stable environment. Also calling Jesus Lord has some fairly significant political complications in Rome because Caesar basically also calls himself Lord. Caesar claims to be God. And when you call Jesus God, you're saying that Caesar is not God. And if you say that too loudly, you'll likely get your head cut off. So basically there's a, a, a sense there in which you're really being somewhat... Uh, radical in your in your your concepts. Paul is also not s- suggesting that this message is you will be saved. You can be saved by believing. It's not a you here. It's a community. It's it's the the world is being saved, and we need to be part of that. So what he's really saying is, are you being summoned to be? to this submission, to be obedient, to be allegiance, have allegiance to God and have faith in that and believe that Jesus is Lord. So saying Jesus is Lord is kind of buying into this submission to God versus being saved. It's kind of a, a slight distinction in how he thinks about it, but it's, they're, they're both there. But the primary thing is, are you buying into the Lordship of Jesus, which leads you then into salvation. Uh, so the righteousness of God is the big message throughout uh, Romans. The, the, the concept that God imparts, God gives righteousness to, to sinful humanity, not because of works of, of merit or works of the Torah, the Old Testament, but by grace alone. So it's a free gift of God. And that's how it's kind of framed. So Romans can sort of be divided into three major sections. All of them to deal with God's righteousness in different ways. 
So the first nine chapters are about God's righteousness in treating both Jews and Gentiles. So it's kind of everybody's sinful. There's nothing, no, the law can't save you. You need God, and God's righteousness will make that right. Then we have this kind of transition section that some people think, well, how did that get in there? Uh, should it, is it an appendix? Is it something that was added afterwards? Or is it really a part of Paul's message? And that's this ch- section 9 through 11. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But it's, basically it's going into how does God complete, fulfill the covenant relationship to Israel or the original Old Testament covenant uh, without really thinking about uh, accepting Jesus Christ as Lord? Is there a way to do that? Uh, is there a way to reconcile that relationship with Israel without having Jews accept Jesus as Lord? And that's a critical dimension in this whole process. And then finally, uh, Romans 12 through 15, there is a 16 chapter, which is basically saying thanks for everything. But 12 through 15 is how do we live as believers, kind of the rules and regulations of, of living a life now uh, in righteousness with God. So let's look at each chapter, each section here. So uh, basically the first part of, of uh, chapters 1 through 8 deals with equal treatment, equal treatment of Jews and Gentiles, that everybody... Is, is bad, is sinful, and needs God's forgiveness. And uh, the, the primary beginning part of this, I'll just read a little bit from 16 to 17, uh, the, basically this beginning of the theme, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. What is the gospel of righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So that's, the, that's the, how he starts the introduction. It's a long introduction of you know, getting himself because he's an ambassador. He doesn't know the church, but this is where he's setting the theme of the, of the dimension. And then he goes into several sections about the, uh, God's wrath for mankind, and God's righteousness and judgment. And, and you get a long list of, of sins here. And you know I'll just kind of read some of them. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, uh, greed and dis, uh, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have senseless, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they, they, uh, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who participate in them. So you get the sense of which they're basically, anything you do uh, is considered sin. And God's righteousness uh, it follows right there. Uh, there. You, therefore, have no excuse. You have passed judgment on everyone else, and therefore you point of judge uh, and condemn yourself. And, and God has every right to death, basically. 
Then it goes into concepts of the Jewish law and how the law uh, is not necessarily doing anything to help you there. Uh, and, and then chapter 3 gets into God's forgiveness. And, and basically uh, kind of makes, this, makes the case that uh, our unrighteousness kind of brings out God's righteousness even more. That uh, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So we end up in, in, in chapter 3 with, with uh, the, the concept of righteousness being uh, brought out in, in this, the concept. So starting in uh, verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So that's the primary message. You believe in Jesus Christ as a free gift, uh, and you can become righteous through that. Continuing on, uh, in, in, verse, in chapter 4, he starts by talking about Abraham again, and how Abraham was justified by faith, that he had faith, he followed God's lead, even with, without uh, the, that, that kind of guarantee that he would be given anything in return. And we end up with, uh, in, in uh, verse 24 there, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, from, Jesus our Lord from the dead, we have... Del- we, he was delivered for our death and our sins and is raised to life for our justification. So the raising of Christ is really the justification. The death is the atonement and the raising is the justification. Okay? So then we get into a section in, 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 in chapter 5 where the peace and, and joy concept comes in. The death comes from Abram, Abraham, Adam, and life comes through Christ. So we are the whole concept of sort of original sin is brought in here, where we're all sinful, regardless, just because we're humans. We're descendant from Abram, uh, Abraham, uh, Adam. Uh, and we, through that, we are all sinners. Uh, and then, basically, in, in chapter 6, it talks about dead to sin and alive to Christ. How do we do that? Uh, and in the whole section there is going through this whole concept of that we're slaves to sin now, and when we accept Christ, when we start living with Christ, we become actually slaves to righteousness, obedience. So we're, we're kind of changing our slave ship, you might say. And, and it's, it's not just, you know, do everything, and you're not just free at that point. You're now a slave Christ, and that's a, a concept that is uh, is, is uh, pretty important in this whole thing. Um, so, being slaves to righteousness, and then he uses uh, in chapter seven an allusion about marriage. He kind of gives that as an illustration of some of this of these relationships, and then in chapter eight, which is 
many consider to be the real climax of Romans and how that, that all kind of builds into here. We have life through the Spirit. How do we, we get into that? And we, it talks about uh, life now, but also life into the future. And this is the whole concept of salvation that we typically think about, heaven, going to heaven. But also it's more importantly understood that he means doing something now, living with, with Christ now, and making it clear to you that that's dangerous, that's costly, that there is suffering if you follow God now, if Jesus now, that the suffering now, however, is nowhere near as important as the glory you'll get in the future. So kind of making the point that the future glory is worth uh, the obedience and suffering that you have now. Um, And then starting in 18, we talk about uh, concepts of how this happens, uh, where we're talking about God is predestined this concept. God calls people to himself and justifies them and eventually glorifies them. So he's talking about a process. And this is where the concept of justification comes in. And this is a very tricky term. We're going to talk a lot about it. But justification basically is, is viewed as crediting the believers a status of righteousness. So it's, is it making you righteous or is it covering up your righteousness? Or is, is it adopting you even though you're sinners? And that kind of thing. So the whole concept of what do you really mean by justification is becoming part of the theological debate that we'll, we'll be looking into. Uh, but it also empowers people to believe, <clears throat> believers to live righteously now. So we have this concept of our sins are forgiven, but we also have the power through justification to live more righteously now. Yeah. Right. I do, uh, and that's going to be a major discussion. The third, okay. <laughs> but uh, and it's a, it's a big disagreement about what it really means. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about what that, how that affects things when, a little bit later, if we can. Hold off. All right. But it is, you know, I think the, you use the word, is, does you, righteousness means are you right? Are you correct? You know, that kind of terminology. Or is it, uh, are, you, are you forgiven? Are you justified? So there's some dimensions to that that we want to focus on. All right, so... The reformers, at least, and uh, many people feel the climax of Romans is in uh, is, is the section 8, uh, 28 to 39, where we really have some glorious language there that really uh, is, is beautiful. Um, if we have time to read it all, we can try, but we'll, we'll go a little bit into it. Um, so it starts out in 28, and we now... Ha- and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For, though, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And, and those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he 
also glorifying. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, gloriously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it God who justifies? Who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is it at the right hand of God, and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for our sake he faced death all day long. We are considered as sheep. To be slaughtered. No, it is in all things that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> I know some of you are reading. I've got the New International Version here, so the words may be slightly different than what you're doing, but I think the message is, is beautiful and clear that that, that really is the, what we hope for uh, through our acceptance and belief and faith in Jesus Christ. The issue is... Go on. I'm just bothered a little bit by the word predestined. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't know if that predestined really came from uh, Paul or from later. Uh, I, Paul is definitely viewing things as predestined. He, uh, the whole concept of the Presbyterian predestination, etc., does come from Paul. So it's not like it's something different. We we we'll, we'll debate actually next time the Pelagian thing, which is free will and all that and, and that kind of thing. But he definitely has a sense of that God is calling us, that and God is doing it without our consent in some cases. Now the question is, do we have the power to reject it? God's call. That's a critical thing. But but God is selecting and selecting and electing people for his service or whatever. And how you think about that is important, I think. Uh, that is that is a debate. It <laughs> uh, basically is a lot of the scripture says no, not calling everyone. Uh, and, and 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 he didn't, for example, he called Abraham for a particular purpose, for a particular job, to save everybody. Okay, so being called doesn't necessarily mean you don't get saved. Does that make sense at all? You're being called or elected to. For service, okay. So how how it works out in this chapter nine, eleven, nine to eleven really gets back to that particular question: Can you be saved without being elected or part of that community? Who is Israel ultimately, and how is Israel pulled together? That makes sense at all. It's hard. Sorry. 
let's continue. We'll see how, we, how it goes. The reason this, I'm bringing this up in this, this transition, so we have this glorious concept here, and then the very next sentence is, I, uh, well, I'll read it. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Uh, for I consider that I have myself have cursed, cut off from God for the sake of my brothers who are my own race, people of Israel. So right now we have this, this big transition from Jews and Gentiles being saved by believing in Christ and then the Jews who don't believe, who don't accept that. And what are we going to do about those people? How does God complete his covenant relationship with them through, uh, through, through this whole process and how Jesus fits into that. So that's the next section. And a lot of the reformers said, throw this out. This has nothing to do with us. Uh, I don't believe any of this. Jesus Christ is the only way. And this section is talking about other ways that God can complete his covenant relationship with, with the Israel or the Jews. And so we've got to think about that as far as how it goes. Um, as I said, basically, the reformers uh, were primarily interested in looking at Romans as kind of a personal salvation manual. They, want, they had people were guilty, they had lost souls, they were in search of forgiveness from a gracious God, and Sections 1 through 8, chapters 1 through 8, really reinforce that. There is a possibility. There is a grace given to you for that. Uh, and why should we now look at this treatment to, the, to Israel? And how are we going to deal with that? Um, <clears throat> an important part is, you know, kind of the, the whole concept here is, uh, <clears throat> why is Israel, uh, the law, not going to get them in, righteous with God? And let's see if I can find that, 32. Um, <clears throat> okay. So the, the concept of, I guess it's all written there. But Israel, the whole concept of Israel, who pursued the law of righteousness, has not attained it because they are pursuing that not by faith, but by works. So the whole concept of faith and works is defined here. And the question really becomes, what are, what are the works that are uh, not leading to righteousness? What kind of works are maybe more effective? And then in, in, in chapter 11, the, he gets back to how this could, might happen. Uh, so the concept is that you know, Israel is rejecting Christ as the Messiah, and that through that experience, they are, they are still continuing to try to do works of righteousness through the law, and that's not going to work. Uh, so God is saying that Israel has, has a hardening of the heart, basically from God, un, until the, the, commit, the commitment to the Gentiles of the rest of the world is complete, and then Israel will be brought back in and saved as God's gift, as he called. And that's, that, that covenant 
God made with Israel is irrevocable, and God will fulfill that in the end times. So basically he's saying that, yes, the Jews are rejecting it now in order for the Gentiles to get in. And once the Gentiles are in, God will go back and look at Israel and fulfill his covenant with Israel. So the first will be last and last will be first kind of thing is how he's framing it in this chapter. Okay? So at the beginning he said the message first came to the Jews and then the Jews were to pass it on to the Gentiles. And now in this chapter he's saying, well, Jesus has come and passed it on and it's completed the relationship with the Gentiles and the Jews who accept it. And after they have come in, he'll go back and complete that relationship with the Jews. The Israel, anyway. What is Israel? That would be the question. So the, what we want to say here is, what is really, what's Paul really saying about the Jews? And this is really kind of a lot of the conflict, and we'll, we'll talk a good bit about this in the next two sessions. But <clears throat> is Paul really wanting to kind of correct Jewish abuses of the law? Is that what his purpose is? Is he trying to invalidate the law? Uh, to saying that it's a, it can't be a source of, it is a source of human alienation with God and therefore should be abandoned? Is he trying to make some distinctions between work righteousness, uh, what kind of, what is work righteousness from a Jewish point of view? Is it kind of more of a national self-righteousness that he's complaining about? Or is the act of actually, obey, you know, doing, getting circumcised and following the laws of the food, uh, food rituals, etc., is that really a problem uh, and needs to be abandoned? Or is it some, something about Jewish nationalism that gets in the way? Uh, is he really claiming that Ju- Judaism should, is nullified by Christ, is no longer relevant, is, is, uh, cannot be useful or fulfilled through that? Um, or is he claiming that, that Christianity sort of cures Judaism and fixes it and makes it right again. So there's a lot of debate about what Paul is actually trying to say there. Uh, And I think when you try to understand Paul from from his own roots, his Jewish roots, uh, uh, in, in light of Christ, he really is saying that God's law must be divine. First of all, God doesn't make these laws up and is, uh, that they need to be fulfilled. Uh, but they may actually be negative purposes that God has for the law. That God is giving us the law to show us how bad things are and that we can't abide by them and we need something different. <clears throat> That's maybe not the best way to think about it, but uh, is, is God giving us, tripping us up? Is God giving us an impossible task? Uh, or, is, or is really, is, is the law something that could be fulfilled? Um, and, and basically wants to say that God is the God of Israel and will provide salvation, but Paul says only through Christ. So how do we get Christ and the Judaism reconciled with each other so that those relationships can be fulfilled? Okay. So let me get into the chapters on uh, the life of believers. Um, and you have the whole concept of making a living sacrifice and make, you know, offering your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. 
which is your spiritual worship, another concept in there. They also the whole concept of love is is in there that we really fulfill love by walking in the spirit of love. The spirit leads us through love to to fulfill that law. Also, the whole concept that we need humility, unity of the church is important, and peace are important aspects of that. And then there's a section kind of about submission to authority. and really, this is get, gets misused a lot throughout all of history. That uh, that basically you should obey obey your leaders regardless of what they are, uh, and live in harmony with other people. Um, that was probably a political reality at the time, uh, especially in Rome, where uh, you know there were definitely dangers of, for your life to be to be found. Ultimately, God, uh, Paul says that God is the final authority, uh, and you know, we need to abide by that. But then you say, <clears throat> well, should we um, continue to think that way if we are the authority <laughs> and we're not subject to the authority? And how do we respond to authority today? Uh, is this still relevant? <clears throat> Chapter 14 uh, really emphasizes community, that Paul really wants to bring the community together, the Jews and the Gentiles. He wants to, uh, uh, for us to understand that tolerance for each other and each other's behavior is important. That you, if you are a Jew and you really feel that eating this, that, act sacrifices to an idol, which happened, uh, is, is wrong, should you, as a Gentile Christian eat sacrifices from idols. Uh, that, you know, are you considerate of other people? Are you considering what they're, how they're feeling about that? Um, and, and ultimately it says that you, your whole life, the life of a believer, uh, will be judged by God at the final times. So he ends this chapter with saying, each of us will be accountable for our relationship with God and how we have lived once we believe. Uh, and that those who bless others and, and condemn others will be judged in those same ways. Those things we approve by others will also be judged by those. So it becomes fairly, you know, concepts of then, is this works righteousness in the same way? And we'll see in the various, various different denominations and faiths that, that living with works is important. Uh, that you, 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 salvation is, is justification is in grace of God by grace alone. But is there something after that that's also required for you to be ultimately saved? And we'll see that there's some disagreement about that. So, kind of summarizing... Um, Kind of an outline of the overall book. Um, so the gospel of God is the power of salvation. That's kind of clear. Um, everybody, everybody needs salvation. It's impossible to attain salvation by works of the law alone. That God needs to do something to uh, make that happen. That righteousness, this whole concept that we'll talk a little more about, is a gift of God. 
uh, and it's received through faith, believing that uh, God will do that, uh, that relationship with Jesus as Lord uh, is wh- where that righteousness comes from, from God. Justification, which is a big term, and uh, the primary output of Romans is the concept of justification. Uh, basically, it, it leads, justification leads to a new life, uh, it gives you confidence that you have a salvation in the future. That it gives you confidence in what you do now. It gives you hope. But it's hope for the future. Uh, that all, in all of creation, all, the earth, etc., are waiting for this final hope to, to be redeemed. Israel rejected the gospel. Uh, and that's a mystery. And Paul basically says, I don't understand how this is going to work. Uh, that he believes that Christ is the answer, that Christ is the way to salvation, but he can't understand how God would abandon his covenant with Israel. God needs to be able to fulfill that somehow. And that's a mystery, how he will do that. <clears throat> but that needs to happen. And this new concept of a new life in Christ uh, with unique ministries that if you are called, if you are elected okay, to be part of this new community, God will give you something to do, <laughs> that you have unique gifts that God will give you through the Spirit uh, for ministry to the world, to other people, uh, and you need to fulfill those. Um, there's also this concept of that you need to be loyal to your rulers. You need to love your neighbor, you have to have an expectation of salvation. And you need to be gracious to others who are different in unessential ways, <laughs> but different from you in faith. And that be, sort of becomes the new law that Paul lays down for Christian living. And how that, <clears throat> uh, that then the question becomes, is that a required law that you need to do those things? Or is it something that you do out of gracious uh, acceptance of what God has done for you and you're doing it voluntarily because you want to be you know, giving back to God who has given you so much? And finally, <clears throat> some key takeaways from Paul. So reiterating his gospel message, Jesus is Lord through his resurrection and that God has fulfilled the covenant with Israel. That God's righteousness has been completed. Uh, that he hasn't left them hanging in essence. Uh, and that relationship, we become part of that covenant relationship by believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The justification is this free gift of God. <clears throat> it cannot be earned through works righteousness. And in many cases, Paul equates this work righteousness concept with Judaism and how that Judaism is getting in the way, the laws are getting in the way of salvation. But he also wants them all to come together. The, The key here is he wants Jews and Gentiles to get come together in Christ. And that is really what God's purpose is to fulfill the covenant through that relationship. It's focused on the community. 
the church, focused on the church being saved, the church being justified, not necessarily your personal salvation. <laughs> so it's more important that everybody kind of get, on, get in on the, the act than any individual be saved. <clears throat> Again, he's also thinking future. Uh, this is, uh, you know, we, had, we have this justification now that we are anticipating will be, happen in the future for us, that we can live our lives now because we have confidence in where we're going in the future. So, and Paul defines a lot of new laws, quite frankly, for Christian living. Uh, the works of the Spirit in love, that basically the Spirit works through us, and we enable the Spirit to do good works through us, but it's a living sacrifice. It's not necessarily all fun and games. It could be very painful. But through the Spirit, we can do those things and achieve those goals and help God bring salvation to more people, the world, and bring the relationship with God back into sync with where it should be back in Genesis. All right. I'm going to stop there just to kind of give you Next week, we're going to talk about how the Reformation took all this, manipulated it, uh, disagreed about it, started wars about it, etc. So there's a lot of uh, problems that got created because of how people interpreted that in their time and how we'll go about looking at that. Does that make sense today in the, in the third week? Okay. Any questions, comments, reactions? Uh, yes. What was uh, Paul actually arrested for? <clears throat> Being basically a rabble rouser. Uh, you know, basically he, he was <coughs> causing infighting between Jews and Gentiles, and the Romans didn't like any of that disorder. That's what I mean. Yeah. So the Romans arrested him for Right, right, right. He had a <laughs> reputation. Yeah, he had a reputation. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right.